1: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to com slash Sharon. Okay, Meta. <laughs> I just told Oren that I could teach Meta in my sleep. And I told him about a time that I actually did teach Meta in my sleep. <laughs> I wasn't lying in bed asleep. I had a canceled flight and ended up all night calling airlines to try to rearrange it. And by the time I got another flight, I looked at my alarm clock and realized I could only have slept for an hour before I had to head back to the airport so I didn't sleep. Flew to Chicago, got picked up got to the place, had lunch for five minutes, and then I was in the hall teaching metta, having been up for like more than 24 hours. I proved that I can teach metta in my sleep. But I'm awake right now, so we're in a different place. Um, I want to go back to that word bhavana, which is the Pali word that more literally means cultivation and is the word that is translated for us, by us, as meditation. We cultivate the ground so that the things we want can emerge, wisdom, love, balance, clarity, connection, all of those things. And in some Tibetan Buddhist traditions, the word, the Tibetan equivalent of bhavana uh, is translated as getting used to it, getting familiarized with it. So when we say meditation, They say getting used to it, which of course brings up the question, well, what's it? And that seems based on the belief that we have had as human beings in ordinary lives, we have had profound experiences of connection, of clarity, of love, of peace. But we don't tend to be awfully used to them. We don't tend to actually live there. Right, so many things can bring that about, inspiration, suffering, all kinds of things can kind of open us in, in a pretty intense way sometimes. And then it's over. And maybe we look at it and think, what was that? Or I think I'll tell everyone about that, or I think I won't tell anyone about that. And mostly, I don't know how to get that back. Right, So it's not that we meditate to try to experience things that are just so remote and unthinkable or far, far away from our experience. We've been there, but we don't tend to live there. So we practice meditation to make a home in these deep, deep places we have actually known. And this corresponds in some ways to when I talked about four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity as the collection, as the package. They're known in the Buddhist tradition as the four Brahma-Viharas, Brahma meaning supreme or celestial. One translation I heard of it once that I liked was the word best. So let's say Brahma meaning best and Vihara meaning dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four qualities are said to form our best home. And like any home, of course we're not there all the time, but we know what it feels like, should feel like, when we get back there. It should be the place we feel most authentic, least pretentious, most at ease, most relaxed, we're home. Okay, so in some way we practice in order to make a home out of these spaces, these understandings, these moments, these flashes that have come into being just through through life itself. So there are lots of ways that bhavana, that meditation practices, are categorized and looked at and distinguished one from the other. Uh, one way of doing that that I, I like is... Those practices, and there are many, many, many ways uh, of, say, practicing mindfulness, where the, the aim of those meditations is to bring us closer to a direct experience of what is, what our experience actually is. Not so much embellishment and projection and interpretation and judgment, but uh, a pretty clear-eyed view. This is what's happening right now. And that allows us to go deep into the heart of anything, right? Sorrow, joy, pleasure, pain, whatever it might be, we can go deep into it to see both something about its nature. Sometimes things, bless you, have held out a lot of promise. You know, we've been taught, do this, it'll make you really happy. And we take a really good look at doing this and we think, whoa, not so happy. Right? We get all kinds of insights and understandings just from being able to be directly with our experience. And we, we see a lot about the universal nature of everything, things like the truth of change. Everything is moving. Everything is changing. Everything is shifting, like it or not. So the engine for those, that set of practices uh, is mindfulness. Mindfulness that's the, the primary quality that we cultivate, to be able to come close to our experience, not falling into it and getting engulfed, and at the same time not rejecting it or pushing it away. So that's one whole set of practices. There, there's another whole set of practices that I tend to call the stretch. And those are practices like loving kindness as a, as a method falls into this where we see that, okay, I maybe have certain habits of attention. And I'm going to stretch. I'm going to make an experiment. I'm going to take some risks with the way I pay attention and actually look at myself, look at this issue, look at someone else from a different angle. So uh, it takes intentionality, which does not mean coercion or kind of undue force. It means intentionality. It's that willingness to to move your attention in a different way. So a classic example of that would be gratitude meditation or reflection. And many psychologists tell us that one of the most healing and beneficial things any of us can do is keep a gratitude journal where every night you write down three things you're grateful for from that day. And I always say that one of them can be that you're breathing. You know, it doesn't have to be really grandiose. And I always say, in truth, that doesn't come automatically to me. My personal conditioning, my familial conditioning, my cultural conditioning is such that I am so much more likely to come to the end of the day and think about everything I have to complain about. So-and-so didn't really show up. I disappointed myself because I did this or that. Could have been better, right? That's just where my attention goes. So for me to actually recollect, oh, maybe that's not all that happened today, is a stretch. It means I have to purposefully include what I normally leave out. It means I have to move my attention to a place I don't normally go. Now, a lot of people feel a little squeamish about these practices because they think you're going to be forced to pretend you feel something you don't feel or make-believe or completely deny the difficulties, but it's not like that. It's really, it's learning to be more inclusive rather than so fixated. You know, if we really fixate, for example, on what we don't have, what we think we need, we tend to overlook what we already have. And there can be very little appreciation and very little gratitude. But that's just because of the fixation. It's not because we don't have anything. It's because we don't tend to include it when we think about our day, our life, our situation, whatever it might be. So these practices take a, a different kind of energy in a way. And uh, it's always, I think, a very delicate thing because you don't want to go in the direction of like forcing yourself or feeling like you failed, you know. And I only had two and a half things to be grateful for, you know, I didn't have whatever. So loving kindness fits very much in that second category where we're playing with our attention. You may, for example, be the kind of person who at the end of the day just thinks about everything that went wrong, that you did wrong, that you didn't live up to, whatever. And so we kind of open our attention to be bigger, to be broader. What's the good within me? What happened today that was good, that was right? You may be the kind of person, we all are actually, uh, usually, where you're talking to somebody you've never met before, but you're not really listening, you're not really taking them in, you're thinking about the 50 emails you need to write, and then maybe you realize that and you think, wow, I can get here, I can just be here. And so in a a movement, a mental movement, very similar to what we do in the meditation, you gather your attention and you arrive. So rather than having your attention be fragmented and kind of dismissive and discounting, you get there. And you listen. You may be the kind of person, we all are, uh, who tends to create like an other, Not only the times we do that through assumptions, or bias, or prejudice, but just through indifference. You know, all the times we go into a store and see the very same clerk working behind the counter and maybe look right through them as though they were a piece of furniture. So the question becomes, what happens when you look at them instead of through them? That's like the training in loving-kindness. To open, to not be so fragmented, to play with the way we pay attention so that we experiment with being different. That person we thought didn't count for anything. Well, maybe they do if we're actually really there. It's empowered. Like one of the parts of loving kindness um, and its reputation, you know, is that it's not only is, is it Sometimes seem like it's going to be forced or funny, but it's so gooey and yicky. And uh, my friend Dan Harris, who's an ABC newscaster, has finally confessed publicly. So I can disclose his name. I've been talking about him for years. That uh, he wrote a book called Ten Percent Happier about his life as a meditator, coming out as a meditator. So he used to just like detest loving kindness practice, and he told me he would be reading it like on an airplane or on a subway. And he'd be so embarrassed to be seen reading a book called Loving Kindness that he would cleverly place his finger over the the title so no one could see what he was reading. And I thought, wow, it's like pornography or something, you know? And then uh, when his book came out, he did, um, on the Huffington Post site, there's a thing called HuffPost Live where they do video interviews. So they were doing a video interview of him because his book had come out. And So they asked some people to make videos and send them so that he could see them as part of his interview, and he'd respond. And somehow I got it into my head that it was like a roast. Like nobody said that, you know, but it was like... So I said, gee, Dan, imagine my delight given that you started saying you were too embarrassed to be seen reading my book, Loving Kindness, in public. And just the other day you posted on ABC News, a loving-kindness meditation. And he laughed, and he said, he said, she's right, it's the most annoying thing in the world, but it works. <laughs> he said, I'm so much less of a jerk than I used to be. So it can seem just like simpering almost, you know, that it's, it's really just all kind of weird. But in fact, loving-kindness is an extremely powerful state because it is fueled by the truth of things. It's fueled by truths like interconnection. Our lives have something to do with one another. That as alone as we might feel, we actually live in an interconnected universe. Every one of us right now sitting in this room is here because of something, conversations, encounters, inspirations, challenges. Somebody gave us a book or told us about this place or uh, told us about their meditation practice maybe long, long ago. And that is a reflection I actually really love to do. So why don't we actually do it for a few minutes? Just see who comes to mind. When you think about anyone who's somehow involved in your being here in this room right now, nobody was driving down Pleasant Street, right? And caught a glimpse of a building through mounds of snow and said, I'm going to go in there. We're each here because of so many connections. Sometimes I do this reflection, I think about the Board of Regents of the State of New York, which gave me a scholarship is how I was able to go to college, which is how I ended up in India through college, because they're part of why I'm here right now. So many beings have influenced this moment in time, and every moment in time. We live in a world of complete connection, and we feel so isolated. Here, mindfulness plays a great role as we pay more and more attention. This is one of the fundamental truths that we see. And loving kindness opens us because it has us change the way we pay attention. So how many beings, in a way, are actually sitting here? It's a lot. This idea of interconnection, that what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there, is one of the fundamental truths of our lives. And if our hearts were responding to that knowing, it would be loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, those qualities. That's like living in the deepest truth. The corollary to it being an interconnected universe is that everybody counts. Everybody matters. When I used to go down to Washington, D.C. and teach, there was a... I, mean, I still go, but uh, there was a particular facility that um, on weekends, the organizers rent sometimes. It was a, an elementary school. that's still since been torn down, so they don't use that anymore. But, Um, The school in Maryland had its own rules of kindness, and they were so great. They were written on these large pieces of paper lining the corridors, and so whenever it was time for walking meditation, we would all just kind of get up and stand there and read and reread the rules of kindness. You know how you like to read again? Like, let me read something. Uh, So we would just read the rules of kindness, and there were things like don't hurt anyone on the inside or on the outside, And my very favorite rule of kindness was everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play. It's not that everybody gets to be your best friend or you're going to take them home with you, but everybody gets to play. We can have that fundamental understanding that our lives have something to do with one another, that we live in that kind of world. And the more in harmony we are with those kinds of truths, the more we have created the conditions for loving-kindness to, to emerge. So it's not phony and it's not weak. Um, it also, the, the deepening of qualities like loving-kindness and compassion doesn't dictate a certain form of action. It has to do with the motivational field, the heart space, the worldview we are dwelling in, we've made our home in. You might, for example, uh, be coming from a deeply loving place, genuinely so. But your best guess through discernment, through observation, through learning skills, your best guess might be that in a particular situation, in a certain context, at a certain time, the most skillful way to act might be really fierce, might be really intense, might be setting strong boundaries. But where you're coming from is not rejection or hatred. It can be coming from a... You could be coming from a genuinely compassionate place and in a particular moment in time, your understanding says, well, this is... Maybe the most skillful way I can do it. So people often uh, get kind of nervous and they say, Well, I don't know about that loving heart thing, you know, because if I were to get more loving, I could only give away all my money, say yes, go back into that terrible situation, let them take advantage of me, refuse to stand up for anybody else. But remember, we don't really think of loving-kindness as dictating or determining our action. There are lots of factors that affect what we choose to do in any particular situation. But we can genuinely be coming from a place of living in a sense of connection rather than alienation. It doesn't make you weak, it doesn't make you foolish doesn't make you give up, doesn't make you give in. Gives us a very different and vibrant and realistic and truthful way to, to be living. It also gives us, I think, a, a kind of um, flexibility or fluidity of attention so we don't have to feel so stuck when you just don't know what to do to help somebody or how to respond or whatever, you realize, oh, I can be thinking, may you be happy. I can like be there fully energetically. When you're kind of grumpy and you're just spiraling down into feeling more and more cantankerous, you can encounter somebody and really wish them well. Speaking of interconnectedness, not always being so pleasant. So I went to D.C. uh, a couple of weeks ago to teach. And I was in New York City, and I I got into that uh, kind of smug weather thing people can get into when, oh, we missed that storm. And I was like, oh, good, we missed that storm in New York. Poor people in Barry. I mean, they're like drowning in snow, but you know, let alone Boston. So, uh, well, we missed that storm. So, um, 7 o'clock in the morning, my phone rang, and uh, it was Amtrak telling me that my train was canceled to D.C. because virtually all the trains start in Boston. It's like, I forgot that. (laughs) Right? It's like, oh, it mattered what happened in Boston, even though I was not there. And that began a journey. And anyway, I got to D.C., and the next day, um, I got in a train to come back, and it was very late, and then it went just far enough to be in the middle of nowhere, and the train in front of us broke down. So I was like, okay. So we waited and waited and waited and waited. And then we went one stop, first stop, BWI, and then we went far enough to be in the middle of nowhere, and our train broke down. So we waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And waited. And finally, I said, you know, after all these promises of like, we have an inspector coming, and we're repairing, and it's like, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> so we're pulling a train alongside, and I don't know if you've ever done it. They put down like this little wobbly bridge, like planks, you know, and you go, it's planks, and you, you transition to the other train, which happened to be a local. So um, it took me eight hours to get door to door. And I was just on the train like canceling things for the afternoon. I had a class that night in New York. And uh, so I have a sublet apartment in New York and I, I got there maybe quarter after five. I was in the elevator, my class was at seven. And uh, I got into the elevator and this total stranger got into the elevator with me. And she said to me, it's my birthday. <laughs> and I thought. Good for you! <laughs> like, I've been up since seven in the morning, you know, trying to get here, but I didn't say that <laughs> because I thought I have a choice. <laughs> and she didn't say it. It was interesting. She didn't say it's my birthday in that kind of sad way, so you think, wow, she has to tell a total stranger in the elevator that it's her birthday, just no one else. It wasn't like that at all. She was like really joyous. And then I just said, that's so great. (laughs) I hope you're having a really good day. And and I meant it, you know? And then she just kind of lifted my spirits. And I thought, okay, may you be happy. You know, the most important thing in this moment may not be to complain about Amtrak, the infrastructure, (laughs) my day, my karma. It was like, wow, that is great. You know, so sometimes the metta is just like getting there and opening and connecting. Conventionally, we talk about metta as a feeling, and I actually don't think it's a feeling. Um, in the sense of it's not always encapsulated in any emotion. And when we think it has to be, then that's part of the way we get into trouble in the practice where... Uh, then we're assessing and evaluating. I don't think it's the right emotion, it's not enough, I'm not sitting here ablaze with love. Um, I think it's actually, sometimes of course it's an emotion, it's a feeling, but I think it's something deeper. It has to do with that moment of recognition. This is a human being who wants to be happy. May she be happy. This is a human being, even though I don't know anything about them. Everybody wants to be happy. And it's because of the force of ignorance that we all make those mistakes and sometimes cause tremendous suffering for ourselves and for others. And this is a human being who is so vulnerable, as we all are, to change, to loss, all of that. We can find ourselves in one another. We can... Have that fundamental sense of connection. It's like the Dalai Lama saying, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. You think about that. Think about how we might more normally meet people. Like sometimes we hardly even notice them. It's like all about me. What do you think about me? Do you like me? Do you like me more than you've ever liked anybody ever before? <laughs> oh no, I said something stupid. You hate me. Right. So if we can drop our self-preoccupation and just pay full attention, wishing well, that's loving kindness. I wouldn't say I loved that woman in the elevator, that I felt some enormous emotion, but I felt tremendous connection right there. She had a day. I don't know what it was like. I had a day, and there we were. And it can be like that, just that kind of undefended moment of connection. That's loving kindness. It's a worldview. It's remembering that everybody counts. It's the field of intention from which we act. And sometimes it's an emotion. And the reason I emphasize that so much is because I say over and over and over again in teaching loving kindness meditation that... It's okay if you do not feel anything great. Truly, it's okay. And I've had certainly my own experiences in the practice and teaching many people for many decades now. And I've just seen it over and over again. And almost like my signature story about loving kindness is when we moved into this building 39 years ago. And uh, we moved in on Valentine's Day in 1976, and we didn't have any programming scheduled for a month. So those of us who were there decided, well, we'll just sit for a month ourselves. And i had always wanted to do intensive loving kindness practice, as we will, you know, throughout the rest of this week. I knew that it was done basically by the silent repetition of certain phrases, like, may I be happy, may you be happy that it was done through moving through different categories, yourself, a benefactor, a friend, and so on. Um, and you know, we'll talk about that tonight or, or tomorrow morning. But I'd never really done it, and I thought, okay, I'd never done it in that structured way. I'd done it like here and there a little bit. So I thought, okay, I don't have a teacher, but I know how to do it, so I'll just spend my month doing loving-kindness. So I was upstairs in what is now room 208, I think. It was 108 back in the day, and um, I spent the first week just offering loving-kindness to myself, and I felt absolutely nothing. It was like a completely dreary week. It was like all day just repeating, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And And I really thought nothing was happening. And then something happened to one of our friends in uh, Boston, sort of in our larger community. So several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat. And I was one of the people who had to leave. So I was up in the bathroom right near room 208, uh, getting ready to go, when I dropped this really big jar of something, which just like went down on the tile floor. And the jar shattered and broke, and the stuff went everywhere. And the first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. You could have given me anything in the course of that week, and I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. So truly, and I've seen it again and again and again, that there are kind of fundamental shifts in the way we see ourselves and life and others, and that may not be the kind of glorious emotion that we we think it needs to be, and it doesn't need to be. So you don't need to be like constantly judging and assessing and evaluating your practice. You need to kind of do the practice and then see what happens. So the basic practice, the fundamental practice of loving kindness, the stretch, the way we shift how we're paying attention happens through the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are the conduit or the vehicle for paying attention differently. We think of ourselves, and instead of just like the usual rant about everything we don't like, we wish ourselves well. We think of those we normally look right through, and instead of ignoring them, we wish them well. We're paying attention to them instead of looking through them. So it's through the phrases that we are shifting how we pay attention. The words, the phrases are words, and so I always say they will be imperfect, and they will be. I usually suggest people choose good enough phrases, and you know we'll go through some of this again tomorrow, but we choose certain phrases and we offer them. One of the ways of understanding those first three practices of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy is that they're like practices of generosity. It may or may not ever manifest as material generosity, but they're like generosity of the spirit. It's the same generous space that has us thank somebody or smile at somebody or or just pay attention to them, right? It's a kind of giving. So the phrases are gift-giving, giving of the fullness of our attention, our presence, our care. The balance that I talked about a little bit earlier is a very relevant play within loving-kindness practice. And that is uh, the balance between, on the one side, concentration and calm, and on the other side, energy and aliveness, right? In any meditation practice, we're working with those And it becomes, I think, very acute and pronounced in loving-kindness practice, in metta practice. Um, The word metta is usually translated as loving-kindness. You see it unless it's obscured by snow in the front of the building. Uh, When we moved in, this building was a novitiate, it was a Catholic novitiate run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, and that's what it said up above the building. So in... 1976, we got someone to get up in a very tall ladder and said, please rearrange those letters so it says something about us. And they came up with META. And what then ensued was a big debate because there was really no precedent in this country for what we were doing. And you know, it was like a Western center using these methods in touch with Asian lineage and yet not being like anybody else so you know we had big debates about everything and uh finally the point of view that wanted the word meta to stay up there prevailed which i liked a lot because that was my point of view and (laughs) and i just like it i like when somebody calls for directions and says you know someone on our side someone who picks up the phone can say it's A large brick building with white pillars, and it's got this word up above, metta, because then usually somebody says, what does that mean? And we say that means love, or that means loving kindness. It is a difficult word to translate, and so uh, loving kindness is sort of an oddity, right? Like, what does that mean in casual conversation? It sounds a little quaint. Um, Love is a very complex word meaning so many different things to us at different times, sometimes really frankly a medium of exchange. You know, I will love you as long as, I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake or something like that. And we know the fragility or the breakability of that state. Literal translation of metta is friend or friendship. And I hope sometimes that we could just use metta, you know, and actually uh, come to feel from within what it means. So in metta practice or loving-kindness practice, um, that balancing act between calm and concentration and tranquility on the one side, and energy and aliveness is especially pronounced. So first a word about concentration, because loving-kindness is a concentration practice like foundational practices in mindfulness, where you do something like settle your attention on the feeling of the breath, and then whatever comes up, your effort is to gently let go and come back. Doesn't matter if it was the most dazzling thought in the world, the most disgusting thought in the world, it's not the breath. You see if you can let go and come back. And over time, that tremendous Stability and power, that integration of our being, that sense of wholeness, really grows. Because we're not so distracted all of the time. As I said, you know, it can't be forced, it can't be like rigid and and too tight, because then it's not going to work. Somebody, I don't know if this actually happened or it's just apocryphal, but... There's this story going around. Uh, you know, someone asked Michelangelo how he would carve an elephant, and he said something like, "He would take a large block of, I guess, marble, and he would take away everything that's not the elephant." <laughs> right? So that's what we do in concentrating. We're just letting go of everything that's not whatever, without judgment, without despair, without uh, elaboration. Okay, it's not that. Let's see if you can let it go and come back gently. So loving kindness works that way, fundamentally. We're deepening concentration even as we are expanding our internal confidence about the power of love and, and what it might mean. So on the one side we have concentration and calm and then we have energy and aliveness. So the concentration part, or that side of things, is really enhanced by things like basically choosing good enough phrases using pretty much the same phrases whoever you're offering the loving kindness to. It's not like you should feel imprisoned by that, but you also don't want to be in a place where you're losing all concentration, And you're just getting lost in discursive thinking, like a new friend comes to mind when we come to, say, to the friend category. And you think, what about you? Let's see. When you get happy, you get really lazy. I don't think happiness is going to work for you. Maybe content? No, you'd really go to sleep if you were content. What about, let's see, you know? Because clearly, we've lost the power of concentration then, right? We're just kind of all over the place. And so we try to use basically the same phrases. That means the phrases need to be pretty general. Not like, may I be able to dig out my car on the day I get out of retreat. But may I be happy, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, something like that. I'll also say the phrases change meaning in time. It's another reason I say choose good enough phrases. Something that may not be that striking or, or feel that significant to you over time through experience may open up in a different way. You know, certainly talk a lot about phrases tomorrow morning, but for example, In uh, Burma, I finally did get a chance to do intensive loving-kindness practice Uh, for three months. I went to Burma in 1985, and that was the the time that I really learned the kind of structured progression of loving-kindness. And um, of the four phrases I was given, the last, which we tend to use here as well, was... Something like, may I live with ease, or may you live with ease, may I have ease of well being. And I thought, that's so stupid. Like, that's so petty. It's trivial, you know. But I just, those were the phrases I was given. So I kept repeating them and repeating them and using them and getting into them. And it was like one day something just opened in me and I thought, wow, our lives can be so complicated. Like so many choices and so many moral dilemmas and so many issues, I thought, may I live with ease? That's like my favorite phrase, (laughs) right? It just changed. So many of these words will just deepen and deepen and deepen in meaning if we pursue it because the power of it comes from our complete wholehearted gathering, right? It's letting go of everything else that's not that thing and letting it evolve. Sometimes it's the phrases that's most predominant. Sometimes it's a sense of the recipient. Sometimes it is a feeling that is arising. Sometimes something that comes up is too strong to let go of. And then we have the basic tool of, of mindfulness, which is fantastic. To be able to be with what's happening without judging it and without projecting it into the future. So that's there too for us. As a way of being, although you might not start right away with that, you know, you might see if within the context of loving kindness practice, you can let go of whatever and come back to the the phrases and if you can't, that's fine that 's not a bad sign; it just means it 's a different aspect of the practice you know, and so we spent today doing that now, because when we call beings to mind. I say beings because it's not just people, right? Um, These are real relationships. It's not a practice where you're kind of conjuring up, you know, like a likely suffering being somewhere, you know, that you've never met. We're calling to mind, if we don't know them directly and intimately, we know who they are. They actually exist or have existed, right? And relationships are very complicated. Some of the categories we do in loving kindness practices: we start with ourselves and someone known as a benefactor, that's tomorrow. Um, The benefactor is someone who's helped us or inspired us. Maybe we've never met them, but they've inspired us from afar. The texts say this is the one whom when you think of them, you smile. So it's like an embodiment of loving kindness for you. Could be an adult, could be a child, could be a pet. Who makes you smile? You know, so sometimes people will come and say, Well, I chose this benefactor and it was going great. And then I had this memory. You know, there was that one time. <laughs> I called them and they weren't really there for me. Maybe they're not my benefactor, maybe they're my difficult person, and <laughs> life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. We're complicated. you know. So you don't want to spend the whole time trying to figure it all out and all that digression. That's why we have structure in the practice. That's why we remember to let go and come back. There's nothing easier in this practice than just to go off, right? So in teaching, I tend to try to emphasize the phrases, the concentration, the method, because it's there as a grounding for us. When I was in Burma, finally in 1985, doing intensive loving-kindness practice, I had like the classic experience. Uh, Saito Upandita, who was my teacher, told me to go back to my room and offer loving-kindness to a good friend. So I went back to my room, and I thought of somebody right away. And then I thought, what's the time difference between Rangoon and Northampton? Let's see, I think it's dinner time in Northampton. I wonder if she's gone out to dinner. I bet she did go out to dinner. Where could she have gone to dinner? Maybe she went to the Italian restaurant, or maybe she went to the Greek restaurant. or maybe No, she couldn't have gone to the Japanese restaurant. I think that restaurant closed. Why do restaurants on that corner always close? I don't understand it. There's really good parking. This is a totally true story. Uh, there's really good parking. It's very close to Smith College. Why do those restaurants always close? Maybe it's bad feng shui. What is feng shui anyway? You know, it's just like, right? And we can do that all the time. So there's a part of the practice, almost technically, where you want to have a structure. So that you have some place to come back, and you have kind of the refuge of not just kind of being out there, you know? And you have that sense of, okay, I know what to do. But you also want it to be alive. We're not just repeating meaningless, meaningless words. These are, you know, you don't want it just to be rote or sing song or, or whatever. And so we bring forth kind of creativity and play on the other side because we want the energy to have it be alive. So it's the same balance of kind of calm and concentration on the one side and energy and aliveness on the other. And it's very acute. So there are ways that we play. We play with imagery or imagination or you know, imagining ourselves or someone else actually being happy, or we do certain reflections, like the good in someone, or that everybody wants to be happy. You know, so we play in ways that kind of wake us up and uh bring that that sort of vividness or or sense of aliveness, so we really do both um, and I think it 's easier certainly in my experience it 's easier to do the latter when you 've done the former, you know when you have some some kind of uh, persistent effort toward concentration and structure and simplicity, so that you have that that kind of grounding and, and we will do both, so the categories just the sweep of the categories. Are we start with ourselves and a benefactor. Um, and I will say, you know, there are also there are many ways this practice is done, just like any practice can be done many ways. So, uh, Leela and I um, both practiced in Burma, the same teacher. I would bet we had different translators, you know, and probably got different phrases. Um, or, you know, there are ways, she was telling me that. Uh, she was instructed to do to offer loving kindness just for herself, and I said, "I never was you know I spent the first three weeks I was there offering loving kindness to myself and a benefactor you know so they they 're just like individual differences, and in the end, I think you really make the practice your own anyway, but you may hear that we will uh, we will post some phrases as suggestions, but you may well hear any one of us kind of divulging our own phrases or you know saying that, oh well I did it a little differently and it's really fine. Um, However it turns out. So, The basic sweep of the practice is that you start with yourself, you offer loving kindness to a benefactor, a friend. A neutral person, that's someone you neither strongly like or dislike. It's like the proverbial stranger. Maybe it's somebody here that you have not yet judged by, like Wednesday or whatever it is. Um, or very commonly, we choose someone in our lives who we do tend to see now and then. That's why it's, you know, we often say like the checkout person in the grocery store, somebody like that that you don't particularly have a relationship with, of liking or disliking, but you you tend to see them now and then, which is a good check. On the evolution of a a connection. A difficult person. Um, And here some of the basic principles of loving kindness come into play. Uh, First of all, as Saira Upandita said, if you don't have a difficult person, which they in Burma call the enemy, so it's a lot more dramatic. So if you don't have an enemy, you don't have to make one for the sake of the practice. And It's not recommended that you choose the most horrible person who has just hurt you so badly or behaved so terribly on the world stage. It's suggested that you start with somebody that you have minor difficulty with. And there's a reason behind that. And one of the basic principles of the practice, which manifests in a lot of different ways, is that it's meant to be done the easiest way possible. That is hard. It's meant to be done the easiest way possible. So even in uh, choosing a mildly difficult person, it may prove to be you know, really dragging you down. So maybe it's time to go back to loving kindness for yourself. That's not a mistake. Maybe starting with yourself is going to prove to be not that wise. A lot of times people make the choice of starting with the benefactor and then tuck themselves in there a little later. Um, One of the reasons we're not meant to start with the most difficult person imaginable is because there's a lot of kind of embodied learning that happens along the way. Like, What in the world could it mean to have love and compassion for yourself and for someone else? What could it mean to have compassion for somebody and know absolutely you will not give in, that it would be wrong? What does it mean to have compassion for somebody and know absolutely you cannot fix it? You cannot make the world all better. You know, these aren't things we necessarily ponder, although you might, but we experience different levels of that as we keep going. So the idea is that by the time you are working, with someone so much more difficult, you've already gone through that, at least to some extent. So you're bringing that into that more complex situation. So ourselves, a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, a difficult person, and then an opening to all beings everywhere. So we're going to cover all of that in this course. It took me six weeks in Burma. And so if you ever feel like you're being rushed, you are being rushed. Uh, We're going to go at a pretty fast clip. It's not to say you have to do it at that rate. I would say uh, in the morning when we give the instruction, it would be good to try. And then maybe you want to go back to something you've already done that feels like needs a little more time. But you're not going to be finished, most likely, by the end of the retreat. in the sense of you've worked it all out with everybody. But my hope is always people will come to a retreat like this, and will leave with more confidence and more clarity about the method, should they choose to continue on. You know, you can continue on in an easier, better way. So we're just going to move through the sweep of it um, beginning tomorrow. And you always have kind of the fundamentals of the breath, your body just sitting in some spacious awareness of what's happening.